2: I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories. In this episode, Sergeant First Class Arlo Doyle shares his experience in the Army and the impact of a traumatic brain injury on his career.
1: My name is Arlo Doyle. I served in the United States Army on active duty for about 12 and a half years. And I can say that when I originally joined the Army, it was as a way to support my wife and kids because being a bartender in Utah is not exactly a lucrative (laughs) career.
2: So what was it that drew you to the Army and not some other branch of the service?
1: To be honest, it was actually honesty that wound up uh, drawing me to the Army. Uh, My brother-in-law is a retired Air Force veteran, and he made the suggestion that I should look into the military branches, and um, so I went to an Air Force recruiter first. Um, He asked me a question about some illicit activities I had done as a child, and I was a little too honest with him, so he uh, pretty much cut me off there because he didn't want to have to kind of deal with the paperwork on that. So I went next on my list, which was the army. And all they were concerned about was whether or not, you know, I could pass being able to get in.
2: Tell us a little bit about your army career. I know you were a training instructor or a drill instructor.
1: So when I originally joined the military, I joined as an 81 Lima, which actually does not exist anymore. It was a lithographer, I was supposed to print maps for the Army and wound up going to the one active duty station in the entire United States Army where you wind up printing propaganda. Um, So for my first couple of years in the Army, I printed propaganda for um, OIF and OEF. And then um, due to the lack of promotion potential in that career field, I switched over to being a 25 Bravo, which is the official name of it is information systems operator analyst. Um, but the easiest way to put it was I was like the army geek squad.
2: So how did that roll into being a a drill instructor?
1: So I was actually voluntold by the army that I was going to be a drill sergeant. Um, so my second duty station, which was at Fort Polk, Louisiana, um, we had just returned back from a deployment to Afghanistan and on the same day that I got promoted to staff sergeant, I received a lovely little email from the army informing me that I was going to be going to school at Fort Benning to get what is called the x-ray identifier, which, um, the army has multiple different skill identifiers and the x-ray one is drill drill sergeant. Um, uh, myself, as well as about three quarters of all of the NCOs that were in our unit, um, that same day came down on orders for drill sergeant or recruiter. Cause they like to get the freshest, newest people back from a combat zone to, uh, go and either train them or con them into joining.
2: So, uh, so as a drill instructor, your job is to mold young minds that's one way to put it yeah okay so so what so what did you do as a drill instructor
1: so when when you join the military and you ship off to basic training or when you join the army and ship off to basic training um you have a certain you know you have a civilian mentality and a civilian outlook towards um the world in general and a drill sergeant's job is to take that individual or multiple individuals you know the most they train it one time for a company is 240 soldiers um i worked in it i was in a gender integrated unit so we had male and female soldiers that we trained side by side um and you take them and you know in many ways you have to you know strip away their you know preconceptions of this is what it's like to be a soldier and train them of you know, how to actually be a soldier or give them the foundational training to become a soldier. I mean, oftentimes that, that, that meant taking people who, you know, had never exercised at all in their life and you've got to get them to where they can pass, you know, the army PT test, you know, the two minutes of pushups, the two minutes of sit-ups and the two mile run, you know, with the required numbers in order to be able to graduate from basic training taking people who, you know, have never shot a firearm in their life and teaching them how to hopefully become, you know, an expert marksman. And
0: I have a question. I always heard that basic training was about taking individuals and making them, like, think like a unit, think like a team player.
1: So that... That is part of it. That, that is an essential part of it because you, you know, especially nowadays, um, you've got lots of people who are very individual thinkers and they believe that their perception is correct or their ideas of how things should go are correct. And in the military, you don't have, you know, you don't have time or, you know, room for that kind of behavior, So you have to get them to understand that while, yes, they may have a good idea or they may have, you know, a way of doing something that may be better than what you're teaching them, that there's a proper chain of command to follow with that and that they need to understand their, you know, their little small cog piece in the overall machine and, you know, get them to understand that, yes, to a certain extent you can think independently and you can make your own actions, but that is a very small lane that you can be in. And if you are going to defer from that, you have to, you know, basically get permission from above and or the higher echelon command. So the,
0: was being in the military a shock to you, or was it did you fit in right away?
1: So uh being in the military was a complete and utter shock for me. Um I was raised by hippies. So going from sort of a very Like free range upbringing, um, think for yourself, go out and have a good time, just don't get arrested was pretty much how I was raised to, you know, happen to be lockstep in with the military was 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 quite a change. For me.
2: So, what was it like the first time you went back home to visit your folks? Because I know you remember coming out of basic training, I mean, you're still walk- you're hanging up your clothes funny because you're still, you know, you're worried that your drill sergeant's <laughs> going to find out that you, you know, hung up something backwards or.
1: Interacting with my parents for the first time was uncomfortable, is a good way to put it. My mother never believed that I would graduate basic training, um, which I kind of used that as a motivation to graduate basic training. My drill sergeant when I was in basic training asked me point blank one day, if I ever wanted to graduate basic training and I told him I would do it despite my mother. And that was my, that was my sole motivation at that point. My dad, he had a real problem with it. He, he you know, he was, he was part of, you know, the late sixties, early seventies, counterculture revolution. And he, you know, he thought the military was bad and evil and, you know, um, not necessarily after, I visited them when I was done with basic training and my AIT. But after I came back from my first deployment, we had, me and my dad had a conversation and he asked me, you know, quite frankly, would I ever kill anybody? And my answer to him was, I don't ever want to come home in a pine box. So if it's a matter of me coming home in a pine box or me sending somebody else home, I'm going to send them home. Because I've got a wife and kids that I want to return home to, and I'll do anything it takes to, you know, come back in one piece to them. My best worst day in the military was the day that I got injured in Iraq. When I was at my first duty station in Fort Bragg, um, I had just come home from a deployment to Afghanistan. And me and my wife had just moved on to base housing when um, when, when shock and awe happened. So we didn't have any, we didn't have any cable or television or anything set up like that. So I'd gone out to buy the newspaper that day to kind of keep up with the news because it's important. And, you know, we no internet, no television, nothing like that. You got to resort to the good old fashioned newspaper. Um, and so I was reading about the whole shock and awe campaign. And, um, I remember distinctly, I told my wife, that if I ever went to Iraq, I had a feeling I would get blown up. Now, fast forward a couple of years later when I was a drill sergeant and, you know, inevitably there's times when you have, you know, downtime in between training and every single cycle I would have, um, I would have a private ask me sooner or later, drill sergeant, what's going to happen when you're not a drill sergeant anymore? And... I don't know if it was just kind of as a joke or as a way to scare them or, you know, to kind of get them to understand the gravity of the situation. Cause when I was a drill sergeant, it was, uh, 2007 to 2009. So things were not that great in Iraq. And we were kind of in a, like a squat and hold position in Afghanistan. I told the privates, I was like, when I'm no longer a drill sergeant, six months later, I will be in Iraq. I was like, and I can almost guarantee you that six months after that, I'm going to get blown up. What's probably going to end up happening is I'm going to lose both my legs. I was like, and then when I recover and I have my tink tink run legs, I'm going to volunteer to come back and be a drill sergeant because you can. And then when one of you complains about how bad your legs hurt from running, I'm going to beat you with one of mine. So this is a story that I told over and over again. While I was in Iraq. So I get done with my time as a drill sergeant and I get my follow on duty station, which was Goldfield Barracks, Hawaii, 25th ID. I get there in December by June. I got there late December, like right around Christmas. Actually, we spent Christmas in a hotel room in Hawaii. So early June, I'm on a plane to Iraq in 2010 and I'm like, huh? Oh, great, going to Iraq. It's that time. So, you know, you, you know, I have this whole from way back when, you know, the war in Iraq started of, you know, thinking that if I was going there, I was going to wind up getting blown up. I have two years of telling soldiers, six months after I am out of here, I'm in Iraq, six months after that, I'm going to get blown up. And sure enough, you know, six months after I'm not a drill sergeant anymore, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm on a plane headed to Iraq. So you, you get to Iraq, you know, and you get there and you start doing everything that you're supposed to be doing and you're getting everything set up. And I had a job with communications and, you know, I was I was an E6 awaiting promotion to E7. So I was, you know, a senior NCO at that point in time. And so for the first part of my deployment, I actually got tasked to be in a completely separate area from where the rest of my unit was to hold up a, a, to stand up and um, run a separate comms unit because this is right around the time when Operation Iraqi Freedom changed to Operation New Dawn. I was there when all the combat troops left and still had a weapon and was eating an omelet and a chow hall. So for the first couple of months that I was in Iraq, I worked at a separate, on, on a separate base because the unit I was with, which was 2nd Brigade 25th IDA, I was in the headquarters element for the brigade. Um, we were in control of two different provinces in Iraq that were right next to each other. So I was basically tasked with making sure that the network stayed up and running for whenever the brigade commander came up to the province that I was in and the main group of the element was down in the other province. I guess after a while they felt that it was kind of a waste of resources to have me up there and they brought me back to where the main group was. So I mean, you, you 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 fast forward through the whole thing, and we get up towards the end. Um, the unit that came to replace us was uh, Second Brigade, First Armored Division, which I didn't know at the time. But the command sergeant major who was in charge of Second uh, of Two One was actually my ops sergeant major from when I had been in Afghanistan the last time. And so I bumped into him one day in the hall and he's like, Sergeant Doyle. And I'm like, Sergeant major Monica. How are you? And he's like, that's great. I'm, you know, I'm doing great. I see they saw fit to promote you. Cause by that time I had been pinned my sergeant first class in my E7. And the last time he had seen me, I was in E6. Um, I was like, I see that somebody saw fit to give you command. And, you know, my boss was kind of standing in the background about to lose her mind because she couldn't believe I was talking to a Sergeant major that way. Cause you don't commonly do that. But me and this Sergeant major had a history. And, you know, at one point in time, when we were in Afghanistan, he had tackled me and buried me in two feet of snow. So, you know, it was good times. But at one point in time, when, when you get towards the end of the deployment, they start, you know, Basically, they call them chocks, but it's the order in which you start leaving, and they start putting people into different chocks. And I'd been put in one, and then so our intelligence, our S-2 guy, who S-2 is the intelligence uh, section in the Army, that's what they call it. The NCOIC for that was scheduled to leave before his replacement was scheduled to get there, which is a horrible thing to happen. So at one point in time, he asked if me and him could switch our positions on when we went home. And I was like, I'm okay with that, you know, but we've got to check with my supervisor. Mm -hmm. Now, my supervisor, when he asked me that, was actually on R&R back in the States. So we kind of set up this time frame of if she's not back by this point because I'm the acting, you know, NCO in charge of the section – then me and him will go to the first ardent and we'll explain why we want to swap positions. And so that time came and passed. And we went to the first ardent and we explained to the first sergeant, hey, you know, we need to do a one for one swap, me for him on these dates. So that way he has some time to, you know, basically share his piece with his replacement. First sergeant was okay, was cool with that. I was cool with that. That got me home a week earlier. So a couple days after that, my supervisor comes back. And, you know, I was like, we need to talk. And one of the things that I discussed with her was about how um, I had changed my position of my date of when it was that I was going to be going home. She evidently was unsatisfied with that. and didn't care much for you know, the fact that I was going to be leaving earlier, even though I didn't have a direct replacement coming. So like I had nobody to brief and show what it was I was doing, but she felt it was necessary to keep me there longer. So that came and passed, um, on the day in question in particular, it was the same day we were doing our TOA ceremony, which TOA is transfer of authority. It was the day that my unit handed over control to the other unit and we officially got to be like, well, we're not in charge anymore. We can all leave now. That was the same day that I was scheduled to start leaving from country. Now, that was June 13th, okay. 2011. Kind of remember it crystal clear. In in the military, kind of rank has its privileges. When, when, when you're a private, you don't have a lot of choices as to what you do. Somebody tells you to be somewhere, you have to show up there because they're going to notice you're missing. However... As a sergeant first class, which is what I was, I could be like, I'm not going. I have something else I need to take care of. And so instead of standing out in the sun in 100-degree weather, watching two colonels talk gloriously about each other, I was like, I'm not going to that. I am going to stay in my nice air-conditioned, you know, I'm I I'm there in basically the transient barracks which are nice air conditioning things um playing video games listening to music because I don't want to stand out in the sun. So at one point in time while this was transpiring guess the best way to put it is my entire world exploded in front of my face. Um I I've been asked multiple times. Did I see stars? Was I unconscious? You know all the normal, typical questions you get whenever something like that happens. Um, I guess I saw stars, but we, you know, from cartoons when I was a kid, when somebody says seeing stars, I'm picturing you know little stars swirling around you know my forehead, you know that I can see. I know one mortar hit really close to me and I know how many I heard after I got to the bunker and there's a huge number disparity between the two. Um, on that particular day for that attack, they launched 19 mortars at our fob. Uh, 13 of them hit within one grid square square area. After I had my incident, I, only recall hearing two or three others hit. So there's a whole bunch that are unaccounted for. I don't know if that was, I was unconscious or I just didn't hear them or whatever the case may be. I actually wound up being the only casualty. We had an early warning system, but um, unlike some of the larger bases in Iraq, (laughs) we had the early warning to be able to get people to the bunker, but not the ability to shoot them out of the sky. I never recall hearing the early warning system go off. I never saw anything about, you know, this is when these particular mortars hit where. Um, I'm not sure if they had the capability to track that. They may have, but it's never something I looked into in depth.
2: I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing,
0: please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. just describe what happened like so you you don't know if you go unconscious but you but were you crawling what what was happening
1: to you so so like I said I had like all the like what appeared to be embers flying at me and I realized oh crap something is happening so I did what any good soldier would do I grabbed my weapon I grabbed my helmet grabbed my cigarettes and I went to go to a bunker and I went to go out the front door and realized I can't go that way because that's where the mortar hit. There's lights hanging down, wires sparking, you know, good old chaos. So the other option was go out the back. So, you know, I ran out the back of the the temporary barracks that we were in, went to a bunker. I got to that bunker. Two of my soldiers that I knew were still on the base were in that particular bunker so I started asking them where the other soldiers that I knew were still in country were because not all of, not all of, you know, all of our, some of our soldiers had already left. There's a couple that were leaving that day and a couple that were going to be leaving a couple of days later. So kind of, I mean, I guess you could say my, my, my training and my instincts as an NCO and being in charge sort of kicked in. You know, I saw my soldier found out if that sold, you know, was like, are you okay? Is there anything wrong with you? You know, Then next soldier, then started asking the questions of where's, you know, soldier X, Y, and Z. I've received some kind of shrapnel wound. There was nothing like embedded in my skull, no giant gash. And so, I mean, it wasn't bad. It wasn't horrible. I couldn't feel it or anything like that. So I was, I generally was not concerned about it because I felt fine other than, you know, something had happened. And, you know, I had probably more adrenaline and, you know, fight or flight hormones running through my body than I've ever had at any other point in time in my life. So after all of that transpired, we got the all clear and, you know, we, the, the, the warrant officer was like, let me take you to the aid station. And I'm like, I'm good. Like I'm fine. He's like, no, let me take you to the aid station. And I'm like, well, I got to go get my top because I didn't have my ACU top on. And, you know, heaven forbid I should be out of uniform. And he was, not having any of that. He didn't care. He was like, I'm a chief warrant officer. I outrank you. We're going to the aid station right now. You have a helmet. You're good. So he drives me to the aid station. I get to the aid station. You know, I've got, you know, a little bit of blood on my forehead and they're all running around crazy because they're expecting, you know, like mass casualties. Cause this was not a, like a small isolated, you know, one or two mortars hitting the fob. This was a lot of them. Um, So I was their mass amount of casualties that showed up. And so, I mean, they took me back and they gave me, you know, they gave me, you know, all the rundown of the battery of tests to see if I had a head injury, you know, they, you know, got an alcohol swab, cleaned up my forehead, gave me some Bacitracin for it, you know, gave me some antibiotics just in case. So that way I wouldn't get an infection, um, some Tylenol for, the headache that I was getting at the time. And while all of this is transpiring, you know, I've been there probably about 10, 15 minutes and I start hearing all this yelling and screaming and a whole bunch of people saying, yes, Sergeant major. Yes, Sergeant major. No, Sergeant major. You can't go back there. Sergeant major. Well, it turns out that the command Sergeant major from the unit that had just taken over, who was my former op Sergeant major, You know, he had found out that I was at the aid station and that I was injured. And he was having none of them trying to stop him from making sure that I was okay. So he was like the first person of any significance, you know, other than like the medics and stuff that I saw after I was injured. And he was like, he, you know, he came up to me and he's like, hey, Sergeant Doyle, are you all right? I'm like, I'm fine, Sergeant Major. I'm going to be okay. It's just a scratch, Mm -hmm. you know, you know. What can you do that it could be worse and so he's like if you ever need anything you let me know i will take care of it i will handle it now i got released from the aid station and of course i didn't have my acu top so i had to go walk back to my barracks where i was staying at that was in pieces and so i'm You know, I'm like walking back and I get this little like brand new E5. You can tell he just got his, you know, sergeant stripes and he was looking to make an impression. And he stopped me because there I am walking, carrying, you know, my M4 by its carrying handle, which even though it's called a carrying handle, you never carry your weapon that way. You know, helmet in hand, no ACU top, just all all sorts of like way out of regs. And so he stops me and he's like, hey, Private, you're out of uniform. And I'm like, you better stand at parade rest when you talk to me. And he's all, who do you think you are? I'm like, my name is Sergeant First Class Doyle. I just got injured. How about you get at parade rest? So I gave him a bit of a tongue lashing for stopping me. But I will admit, I wasn't necessarily in the right mind to be really doing much of anything at that point in time. So, you know, after I thoroughly berated him for making assumptions about my rank and why I was walking way out of uniform when there had been, you know, an attack on our base previously that day, you know, I proceeded back and you know, I got to where my stuff was and you know, I got my ACU top, I got my ACU hat. And the first thing that was going through my head was like, I've got to tell my wife. So Me and my wife, she she knew that I was getting ready to come back home. And so we over the years and with the multiple different deployments, we'd kind of set up sort of like code words or code situations for being able to pass sensitive information like I'm going to be coming home soon, you know, or I fly out, you know, or I'm going to be flying out of, you you know, simple things of like I'm going to be real busy tomorrow. I won't be calling at the normal time. So make sure you have your, you know, your phone with you when you go to bed. So I called her after all of this was over with. And in in Hawaii time, it was like two o'clock in the morning or something (laughs) when I called her. Um, But she knew to be expecting the phone call. So, you know, she had her phone with her. And so after, you know, I got all my uniform stuff, I, I went and I called her and I was, you know, I told her on the phone. I was like before you hear anything from anybody else, I just want to let you know that I'm fine. (laughs) And she was like, did something happen? I'm like, yeah, something happened, but you need to know that I'm okay. And she's like, Oh, okay. All right. What happened? And then evidently I, so I, I can't mimic it anymore. Um, but my wife told me with absolutely when, when I, when I told her what happened on the phone, There was absolutely no emotion in my voice whatsoever. And it was, you know, completely dead flat. Matter of fact, this is what happened. So, you know, I told her that I had gotten blown up. It wasn't in such nice words. It was blown the F up. Um, And I was like, I just want you to know that I'm okay. I have stuff I have to go take care of, but I wanted you to, you know, know that I was fine. I wanted to make sure that I contacted her before anybody else did
2: what was, what was her reaction to that?
1: She was like, are you sure you're fine? And I was like, yeah, I told you I'm okay. I'm fine, but I have to go because I had other stuff to take care of. So, I mean, it was a short, short conversation with her. And I was like, I'll call you later.
2: I wish she was here. So uh, I guess my question for you is afterwards, when you guys get back together, what was she thinking when she hangs up that phone?
1: Um, you know, She what she started thinking was that she needed to start making sure that everybody else had known. Um, We, you know, it's an unfortunate thing that at some point in time, you know, when you're in the military, you have to discuss the possibility of you being severely injured and or dying. And what, you know, if you have a spouse what are their responsibilities afterwards? And, you know, me and my wife had had several discussions about it. So she kind of, you know, even though I woke her up at like two, three o'clock in the morning, I'm not sure exactly what time it was, but, you know, she sort of filed that away, went back to bed, and knew that when she got up in the morning, like the first thing she needed to do was she needed to call, you know, she needed to call my mother, she needed to call my sister, she needed to call my dad, she needed to call her family, and let them know that I was okay that she had heard that I was okay from me. So that way they would know not to worry just in case they heard something. So, you know, she, she did like any good, you know, army wife would do. She, you know, she processed the information and then she went about, you know, taking care of business like she had to, because you, you know, not, a, I mean, in many ways, I think not only do the service members sort of learn how to just be able to pick it up, hold it, and carry forward how they need to. But you know, the wives and the kids, they all learn how to have to deal with that as well. And, um, it's, 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 it's interesting whenever me and my wife talk about it still to this very day, even though it happened way back in 2011, she has yet to cry over it. Like, and at this point she's like, there's no, you know, there's no point in it. Like it's done. It's over with. We've moved forward in our lives. So, after all of this had transpired um, you know, it was still everybody's plan is, you know, continue forward with the plan as ordered. So, you know, I gathered up all my bags and took them to the gym to assemble, to fly out. Um, And I was asked multiple times by multiple different higher ranking people um, whether or not I was okay. I'm like, I'm fine. I just want to go home. Like at this point, I just don't care anymore and I just want to leave. Like getting blown up is kind of a significant emotional event. And so, you know, and so they would go and they would come and they would talk to me and they'd ask me, are you fine? Do you have this? Do you have a headache? Do you feel dizzy? And then they would go and they'd huddle amongst themselves and then somebody else would come ask me a question and then somebody else would come in. And so they were obviously having some kind of discussion about me. I, I found out later on that technically you're not supposed to be flying unless it's like a medical necessity hours after you get blown up and, you know, receive a concussion. But my saving grace was the command sergeant major or command sergeant major Mauna Kea. He, you know, he had been my, he had been one of my sergeant majors on my previous deployment. He had been through another deployment with that unit where they had lost several soldiers and, you know, over the years he would lost multiple different soldiers and as far as he was concerned, he was just tired of losing soldiers and watching his soldiers get hurt. And so he was like, I don't care. You're taking this soldier and you're getting him the hell out of here. So he was kind of my saving grace of I didn't have to wind up staying a couple extra days because he was like, just get him out of here. So he sort of pulled his rank and was sent me along my merry way. Which So, you know, we went from where we were at, which was Fob War Horse was the name of it. And then we went to a JBB, which was Joint Base Balad, which was big Army Air Force Base. That's where a lot of the flying happened out of. Um, And once we got there, I got the opportunity to go and call my wife again Um, much later. And it was way late in the evening in Iraq, way early in the morning or like afternoon in Hawaii And so I called my wife and, you know, started the conversation like we would any other day because what do you do? And she's like, didn't you just call me a couple of hours ago telling me you got blown up? Yeah, I did. I'm fine. Was my response. And she, she kept pushing at it. She's like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? Until finally I just like screamed in the phone. I was like, I'm fine. She's like, thank goodness. I'm like. What? Like, how many times do I have to tell you this? And she's all, you had no emotion before. She's like, now you have emotion, so I know you're okay. And this is where sort of the self-fulfilling prophecy comes in. And she's like, so it's not that bad? I'm like, no, not that bad. She's like, so you didn't lose your legs? I was like, no, didn't lose my legs. She's like, I guess you're not getting tink, tink, round legs. And, you know, the, the reason I refer to this particular event as probably the best, worst day of my life Is I survived and I survived relatively unscathed. Granted, I I have a whole bunch of, you know, medical issues and stuff from getting a traumatic brain injury that, you know, have lingered and persisted and eventually caused me to get medically retired from the military. But I mean, for the most part, when I walk down the street, nobody knows. Nobody can see, you know, I'm not missing a limb. I'm not horribly disfigured because I don't have any, you know, outwardly visual signs. I don't have to deal with a lot of people asking a lot of questions of, you know, what happened to you, or I don't have to deal with people staring and ogling at me and wondering, Oh, what's wrong with that guy. But on the same token, by not really having anything that's visual that, you know, I can point to and say, this is why I'm so screwed up, you know, Sometimes people have a tendency to gloss over it and are just like, oh, well, you don't know what it's like, or you don't, you you know, you don't really have that problem or you don't really have that issue. It's all in your head. Well, yeah, actually it is all in my head. And, but you know, that's what happens. And so, I mean, in some senses it's good because I can remain rather innocuous and people, you know, people when they see me walking down the street, they don't think that I was some guy who was in the military who, you know, was a drill sergeant or anything like that. And so I don't have to deal with any of those questions, but then other times it's like, you know, I've had other veterans when I was at the VA look at me and tell me that, you know, I have no idea what I'm talking about because I'm just fine. And it's like, but I'm not.
2: If you had to explain to somebody what it means to join the military, to be a part of the military, what would you tell them?
1: Um, It could be the best experience of your life. It can also be one of the worst experiences of your life. Um, One of the things that I think makes the military great is when you sign up, you become contractually obligated to have to stay. So, you know, it's not like when, you know, you're a civilian. If you want to quit your job, you can just quit and you can walk away. You know, granted, you still have to deal with the financial repercussions of quitting your job. But if you really hate it that much, you can walk away from your job and, you know, they're going to replace you. You can tell somebody every day, I quit and you can go home, but you better be at formation the next morning or they're going to send some, co- you know, or they're going to send the MPs to your house and you're going to get in a lot of trouble. Um, so, in that sense, it's really good because it, you know, it requires that sort of commitment. And, you know, the decision to continue to stay in after your first enlistment, you know, is is, it's a major one. And then, you know, to continue to stay in, it creates a real dedication because you can't, you know, you can't just quit. And, you know, the military is just like any job. You're going to have your good days and you're going to have your bad days. Some of your days suck worse than others. But, you know. If you have a stretch at a job where, you know, you get a new supervisor and they just suck and you can't take it anymore, you can always go find another job. In the military, it's you've got to wait until you get orders to a different duty station or, you know, your crappy supervisor gets orders to go somewhere else and you hope it gets better. But there's no guarantee of that. So, I mean, it's it, I never thought that the military would suit me as well as it did it you know i went in being kind of completely you know raised counterculture to the military and it suited me perfectly and you know given everything that i know now if i had the option to go back and do it all over again i still would i'd probably be a little better at it you know having the experience already but um you know i in many ways i have to be thankful everything i have now you know, good and bad, is because of my time in the military. And I had spent years trying to be what I thought, you know, was the ideal husband, the ideal father. And that, you know, that experience really gave me the opportunity to sit back and look and be like, yes, even though I'm working very hard to bring home a paycheck and getting promoted and doing all these things, I'm not really there as a husband. I'm not really there as a father. I you know I go to work, I come home, I go to work, I come home, you know, and my kids don't necessarily see me, you know, and they don't get a lot of interaction with me, and I didn't spend a lot of time interacting with my wife, and so it gave me the opportunity to be able to like step back and reevaluate things.
2: If you or any veteran you know is feeling self-destructive or suicidal, please don't hesitate to use the Veterans Crisis Line by either calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 or by texting 838-255 or by visiting www.veteranscrisisline.net. This 24-7 confidential service is for all veterans, all service members, the National Guard and Reserve, their family members, and their friends. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps grow our audience. We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Chilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of The Loudmouth Project.